0: Call them change makers. Call them rule breakers. We call them redefiners. Join us in
1: conversation with daring leaders who are creating extraordinary impact and driving change from
0: around the globe. Each episode gives you a fresh perspective on your leadership and career journey. I'm Hoda Tahoon, a leadership advisor at Russell Reynolds. I'm Clark
1: Murphy, the former chief executive officer and a leadership advisor. And this is Redefiners.
0: Hi, everyone and welcome to Redefiners. For our listeners who are fans of American football, you know the Super Bowl is just a few days away. Hopefully your team has made it through and will be playing in the finals, but if not, there's always all of those Super Bowl commercials for you to enjoy, and of course, the halftime show with Usher to look forward to. Clark, tell me, who has been one of your favorite halftime show performers in the last few years? Oh come on,
1: Lady Gaga, absolutely
0: take the oh, plunge. Oh, come you know? on. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, Beyonce. Absolutely.
1: I, I'm a New Yorker. Lady <laughs> Gaga I went to the same school as my daughter, so Did
0: she really? <laughs> absolutely.
1: Oh, wow. Listen, I love Super Bowl weekend like tens of millions of other people plan all around it, travel, etc. So, I am pumped and you know, I'm less about the commercials. I am about halftime and about The game and kind of the hype. But come on,
0: the commercials are pretty good.
1: They are, they are. But for many years, I took our son Liam, that was our thing. We went to like five Super Bowls between the time he was six or seven and eight before he went to college. Oh,
0: amazing. Okay, so most memorable Super Bowl for you and Liam?
1: Probably in the Meadowlands because we just took the train over and back.
0: Okay, awesome. Clark, since we're on the topic of Super Bowls and American football, who is our guest today?
1: Our guest today is Kevin Demoff, who is the chief operating officer of the LA Rams. The Rams had an amazing season, surpassing expectations of many at the beginning of the year, but they really, really had a great season overall. Kevin was instrumental in moving the Rams franchise back to LA, their iconic home, as well as envisioning and constructing the 300 acre sports and entertainment complex where they play. It's one of the most innovative and sustainable facilities,
2: not only in the NFL but in any sports complex. Kevin, welcome to Redefiners. It's great to be on Redefiners. I wish we were still playing in this Super Bowl and in that hunt, as, as Hoda said, but we're not. So that at least gives me the time to, to sit down and chat with you guys. Silver linings.
0: Silver linings.
2: We are very
1: selfish that we're bummed that Rams aren't playing, but we're happy you made time for us. Thanks for being here. My pleasure.
0: Kevin, we're so delighted to have you part of the show, and let's get started with a bit of your background. So you come from a professional sports family. Did you always want to be in pro sports, or was there another career that you had in mind when you were growing up?
2: I never thought I'd wind up in pro sports, and that sounds silly growing up, as you said, as part of a sports family. And I actually, that's not entirely fair. I thought I'd wind up more in the broadcast media or sports journalism side, uh, having been sports editor and doing broadcasting in college. And that was where I thought the path would be headed. If you told me someday I'd be working for a team, I would have been surprised at the time. But also, when you look back on your formative years from playing fantasy football, starting at age seven and eight and doing mock drafts at 10 it's probably not that big of a surprise to people who knew me, just more to me.
0: Yep. And you started your football career in the arena uh, with the LA Avengers. What did you learn from that experience that you think has stuck with you throughout your time now in the NFL?
2: Look, getting your start in minor league sports is the best thing that can happen if you work in a sports career because you get to do everything, right? And and I was fortunate enough to get a start in the arena football league in, in 2000, back when the league was growing like a rocket ship for a time. And I got hired as essentially the general manager, director of football operations. So I got to pick a head coach, make trades, sign players. I also picked up Chipotle. I took dry cleaning in. I was the one who checked all 24 players in at the airport because we flew commercial. Oh, you
0: must have some great stories.
2: The stories, (laughs) I would say, if you ever write a book, the first eight chapters will be the Arena Football League. But what I loved about it is you put t-shirts on seats. You did everything in... A minor league setting. And running an NFL team is no different than running an arena football team. The dollars are very different. The public attention is very different. The scrutiny, the fan base. But at the core, the decisions are the same. The people, the leadership, and the challenges are very similar, just very different dollars. Okay, let's talk about the move from St. Louis back to LA.
1: For our European listeners who don't follow American football, the Rams left Los Angeles originally in 1994 for St. Louis, where they won a Super Bowl in 2000. But then in 2016, they moved back to L.A., where they again won a Super Bowl in 2022, becoming the first team and city to host and win the Super Bowl. Nothing like playing the Super Bowl in your home field. Kevin, tell us about the decision and
2: and the emotions of moving a franchise as iconic as the Rams. I don't know how long the podcast is supposed to be, so if you want to get into emotions, decisions, reactions, look, moving a team is always a very emotional subject. Sports teams are the fabric of a city. They are civic entities. They're for the fans. And so anytime you leave a community, there's going to be hard feelings across the board. I think if you talk about what's so strange in North American sports versus European sports, you can't imagine... European teams actually leaving their cities, right? Yeah. It happens here in North America in every league and it's happened over and over again. Man United isn't moving to Birmingham, that's for sure. And so I think you, you have to put that in context of, of how these teams operate. You know, I was fortunate. I grew up in Los Angeles. I grew up in Los Angeles Rams. We're, we're part of the, the fabric here. And the fact that there was no NFL team in the second largest market in the United States for 20 plus years in one of the most global cosmopolitan cities was always a kind of a black stain on Los Angeles and and quite frankly on the the NFL as well, that no one could ever figure out how you build a stadium, how you bring a team to life. We had a lease expiration in in St. Louis that allowed us to imagine what could be and, and a chance all of a sudden 300 acres at Hollywood Park came available. fortunate enough to work for someone who understands the balance of real estate and sports, and Stan Kroenke, who had a vision for what that 300 acres could mean to the community of Los Angeles, to the NFL, and really become the preeminent sports entertainment district in the world and to help work on putting that together to bring the team back. It was challenging how you get a community like Los Angeles excited that had been without NFL football for 20 plus years. And Mm -hmm. and to come back to a fan base that we had left and jilted, it really one of the first times the team came back for good. And then leaving a market that we had passionate fans in in St. Louis, it's a very difficult and balancing act. I did not have gray hair before the move. Look at pictures from 2014, 2015, and then 2017. You got it. But look, I, I think you get two elements of the scale. I would say probably the biggest professional failure is running a team that moved because we didn't do a good enough job Mm. in the community we're in. And then getting to start in, in a place like Los Angeles as well, where you get to go build one of the greatest opportunities in sports or business in many decades, the NFL in Los Angeles and building a stadium and building what's become Hollywood Park is truly one of the greatest opportunities. And getting to do that from scratch and piecing it together has probably been one of the greatest blessings of my career.
0: Kevin, I'd love to maybe just pull on that that note a little bit more around Hollywood Park because obviously it's a massive development. You've got the sports piece, the retail, the commercial, the hotel, the residential. There's all these different facets to it. Talk us through the organization's vision, your vision, and how the NFL and the pro sports factor all come together.
2: I think it really starts with, we can talk about very visions, Stan Kroenke's vision for what Hollywood Park would become. And... I think everybody always knew if the NFL came back to Los Angeles, it had to be more than a stadium. It had to be more than just a football team. It really had to come together in a meaningful way. And that's a sports and entertainment district that could become the epicenter of sports in the world. And I think Mm. we'll get to that in a second. But you had to do it around not just the stadium, because the economics of a stadium in Los Angeles are really hard. And Mm. they weren't supposed to become $5 billion. It (laughs) was supposed to be less than that originally. But if you're trying to pencil out how you build a stadium in the entertainment capital of the world that's going to make people want to come over and over again, it has to have every bell and whistle in the world. It has to feel uniquely Los Angeles. It it had to have all these design drivers, and you knew it was going to be 100% privately financed because California doesn't really give money for public stadiums right. the way some other markets might. So when you start to work on those economics, you really need the real estate piece to come along with it to help make it come together, not just from an economical perspective, but really a strategic importance perspective. We really ultimately have the right to do 15 million square feet of development on this project. And when you think about 300 acres, it's larger than Vatican City. It's larger than Disneyland. It's a huge element. And this is right in the heart of Los Angeles. You're talking three miles from LAX, 10 miles from kind of the west side, five miles from the beach. This is in a prime real estate location and it will be amazing to see. And that vision is what has allowed us to fortunately host a Super Bowl in 2022 that we were able to win in our own building to host the college football playoff in WrestleMania. But also now, we will be a host city for the 2026 World Cup. We will host the Super Bowl again in 2027. We'll host the opening and closing ceremonies for the LA Olympics in 2028. SoFi Stadium will become the first stadium in history to host all three of those events, let alone in consecutive years.
0: That's quite incredible. Wow. Wow. I
1: hadn't
2: thought through the multiple-year
1: thing. That's incredible. A lot, of, a lot of cities are pretty jealous, I would imagine, of
2: that one. Yeah, it'll be a sleepless couple of years. <laughs> Talk to me on during closing ceremonies and see how we feel.
1: And I've heard a lot about the uses of technology and innovation, about the, the
2: customer experience, the fan experience. Tell us a little about that. I think when we started SoFi Stadium, not only do you need an amazing venue for fans and an ultimate customer experience, it has to be technology-friendly. And when you think about we have the world's largest video board. And when you turn it on before our games, it's the world's greatest sports bar setup. You can watch all the games previously before it. A fan in the upper deck can look straight across at it versus a fan at the lower levels can look diagonally across. But from us, from the beginning, you get into building our own data system, so the Wi-Fi and cell phone coverage is better. You laid enough cables so that we could easily go in, and when 8K becomes a thing, you'll be able to transfer to 8K very easily. One of the things a lot of mistakes stadiums make when they build is they start to build the infrastructure and the technology at the beginning. So when we broke ground in 2016, we really didn't put the technology in this building until 2019, 2020. And so we went through the whole process while it was being built still improving. And it was the last thing to basically go into the building really along with the seats was all of the broadband, the wiring, the technology. And from a fan experience, making it cashless, frictionless, technology forward, that's always going to be the way that you can really improve the fan experience on a day-to-day basis.
1: So SoFi Stadium, pretty cool. It's an open-air stadium, making it one of the most sustainable stadiums in sports, Kevin, can you talk a little bit about the importance of sustainability and the decision to make the stadium open air when you designed it?
2: Yeah, and certainly when you're building anything in California, certainly the size of SoFi Stadium, it has to be a sustainable building, a LEED-certified building, and start with that design element in mind. We do have a canopy roof over SoFi Stadium. But what you have is it's an open-air stadium. There are no walls on the building, so it is covered. It's not a retractable roof like in other buildings. It's a fully covered roof, but essentially it operates like a 22-acre patio. Mm.
0: So it really sounds like every piece of the fan experience has been thought of. And as we think about the fans, professional sports teams have a very special relationship with their fans. And when the team is doing well, the fans love you. But when the team is struggling or losing, those same fans will turn on you in a second and can be really ruthless. From a business standpoint, business leaders have to deal with that sort of customer feedback or fan feedback all the time in your case.
2: One of the things you said, even when you're doing well, fan feedback isn't always positive, right? There are always (laughs) things that you can improve or change or, or play calls people want to see different. It's one of the great things about sports. The passion of the fans is what drives the whole industry. Yeah. So I think you're always in tune with your fan base. And for better, or for worse, I read everything that's written about our team in the media. I watch it on television. I read it in the comments, in social media, and it is a hard place sometimes. But I always say this, your fans deep down, they get to your insecurities pretty quickly about your own franchise. Mm fans are great at identifying your weaknesses. It's up to us to then fix the problems. I always say the, the solutions they come up with may be more <laughs> fantasy-oriented than they are based in, in reality, yep. but they're great at identifying problems. And I think if you want to be in tune with your fan base, you need to read all of it so you know what you're trying to fix and what you're trying to solve and how you do it. And I think there's got to be some element, and I think a year like this year in 2023 that we just went through, where fan base was initially pretty dejected that we let go of a lot of players that they known. We're choosing a different path. And we were very vocal that we thought that this path would work, that we'd have success. Ultimately, we wound up having a pretty good year, and I think they're in a much better place now. But you're going to get into 2024, and they're going to have all kinds of solutions for how we go get better, right? Right. But I always think one of the things, and this is true both in sports and I think across the board, as a leader, your most important quality is your consistency. When people come to you, they have to know how you make decisions, how you're going to handle it emotionally, and how you're going to approach the problem solving that comes to your desk with a consistent manner because that allows them to know how they bring you problems, how you're going to try to solve them, how you frame them, and how they should go attack the problems. I think if you're a leader and you're wildly emotional, wildly inconsistent in how you approach problems, it it leads to a building that is emotional and inconsistent. That's the worst thing you can have. Passion should drive you, but consistency is going to be what makes you better each day.
0: Kevin, the Rams are in the top quartile of the NFL in terms of racial and gender diversity. When you think about equity and inclusion, along with the strong commitment to social impact, how do they factor into your approach as an inclusive leader?
2: I think the most important thing you can do when you are a sports team, you have an outsized responsibility and platform to your overall position in the world, right? As a revenue generating business, we're not a Fortune 550, you're not a Fortune 500, not a Fortune 1000 company. But obviously you're a platform that everybody knows and everybody looks to for guidance and leadership. And I think you have to take that role very responsibly and set the bar high for everybody in the community. So when they look at you, they see the best of Los Angeles. And I was thinking everything we do at the Rams, it has to be the best of Los Angeles so that we can make, fans from all aspects. And we're one of those rare businesses. We're B2B and B2C. When you think about our fan base, most of them are fans who buy season tickets. They may never come to SoFi Stadium, but they watch on television. They walk into a store and they buy a Rams t-shirt. They have to feel good about who we are as an organization, Mm -hmm. what we represent, how we engage the community. And I think one of the things is how you build long-term fandom is you handle yourself the right way both when you win and when you lose. And when you lose, what gets you through those tough moments is people in your community believing that you care about them, that you make a difference in your community on a daily basis, and you're here to uplift Los Angeles and help people see the best of that. I don't want to say that it gets taken for granted when you win, but those are the moments where you actually build equity in your brand and with your fan base in those lower moments. And I think from an inclusion perspective, it's so important when you look at our team to set that example because our leaders are very visible. They know our head coach. They know our assistant coaches. They know our players. They know our general manager. They know our front office. They know me. I don't think most people, if you go you know, shopping at a department store, know who the CEO, the CMO, the director of merchandise is. They do know that for all the sports teams. And I think When you do, that places a heightened responsibility to showcase that different leadership. And for us, one of our first things coming back to Los Angeles was we had this opportunity to basically create an organization from scratch. If you're going to be in one of the most culturally diverse, you know, multiracial international cities, your staff has to reflect that. It's not when you're in a market that is majority Latinx, you have to make sure that you know how to reach those customers. And that's not just trying to outsource that. That's having that inside your building. And To me, we always want our organization to be a reflection of Los Angeles as a whole and its makeup and to continue to make those strides. I've always been a believer that we should be the organization that provides opportunities and knock down walls. and Whether that is being a majority female on the business side, I believe we're one of the only sports teams in the world to be that. We have a number of females working on the football side of the business, which is rare, but also, it gets beyond that. The first to introduce male cheerleaders. Mm. And we had male cheerleaders just show up to our tryouts. It wasn't this vision that we're going to go break down these barriers. It was, they want to a out? They want a spot. We're going to put them on the team. Yep. And this has always been an organization. If you go back to Kenny Washington, that's broken down racial barriers in the 1940s by reintegrating the NFL. We were the first team to draft an openly gay player and Michael Sam in, in 2014. This has always been about how do we make the NFL and sports more inclusive as an organization and set that leadership tone.
0: We'll be right back with Kevin Demoff. But first, we'll hear from Ben Shrewsbury, a managing director in our Dallas office. Ben will discuss why chief operating officers are often the first choice for the CEO role and the skills they need to dial up to thrive in that top seat.
3: When a board is looking for their next CEO, What experiences do they gravitate toward? While there are many potential routes to the top seat, we know that one of the most common CEO feeder roles is the COO. Our research found that 43% of CEOs in Fortune 250 companies have been promoted from the COO position. But how do you best prepare COOs for becoming CEO? What behaviors will they need to dial up? In psychometric interviews with hundreds of COOs and CEOs, we found some discernible differences between the two leadership profiles. Our research showed that one, While both COOs and CEOs may test limits and take risks, CEOs typically exhibit a higher propensity for doing so. Two, while both cohorts rely on their charisma in high-pressure situations, COOs often exhibit a less dominant approach in those circumstances. Three, COOs have a tendency to share their ideas before fully vetting them, but CEOs are even more inclined to do so. Four, and lastly, CEOs tend to have a stronger preference for creative and innovative environments, while COOs usually prefer a balance between practicality and creativity. To learn more about the differences between the two leadership profiles and how you can best coach COOs to shine bright on the succession radar, click the link to the article in the show notes.
1: Europe loves American football. Of course, we have to call it American football. (laughs) Wembley, Germany, you have a great appreciative fan base. What's your point of view on
2: football going to Europe or having a European-based team? We have been fortunate. We've played in four games in London, 2012, 2016, 17, and 2019. Two at Wembley, two at Twickenham. They're some of the best experiences you have as a team. And when you come over, those games feel very much like a Super Bowl. In my favorite memory, our last time we played at Wembley, walking in the building, people wearing all kinds of different jerseys. Some guy's wearing a San Jose Sharks jersey, which is an, an NHL team, and you're like, they're just looking for any excuse to put on the jersey. But I, I think what I find so interesting, and you know, we're fortunate enough, our owner Stan Kroenke owns Arsenal, and I was just over there uh, for their Boxing Day match against West Ham. European soccer, when you see the tribalism and you have a team and you stick with it in those communities, it is... Amazing. And I think we all would strive for that kind of great passion around our teams. But it really, you think about how many different, even within London, six different teams, I believe, in the EPL, right? So a city divided, where in the US, there's no more than two teams even in the biggest cities. And what I love about the European aspect is when you see all these people coming together to support just the game. And that to me is so different than what you experience in the EPL, or I would imagine in Bundesliga or La Liga. It is more of a melting pot of fandom than than some of the soccer teams.
0: Kevin, we love to talk about redefining moments on this podcast. So these are moments that shape how you lead or view the world. And I imagine that you've had a few of those moments throughout your life and your career, perhaps even more recently during the stress of obviously building the new stadium and managing and relocating the sports team. But tell us what sort of comes to mind when you think about a redefining moment in your life.
2: I think through two very vivid ones. The first would be, you go back to our St. Louis days in, in 2014, civil unrest in St. Louis after a teenager was shot, a trial in Ferguson, and the created more unrest, and St. Louis was very much on edge. Mm. And we had five players right after this civil unrest come out of their tunnel in a hands-up, don't-shoot mm. posture, which was basically in support of the young person who was shot yeah. and viewed as anti-police, anti-law enforcement. And you think about crazy swings in your life. We won the game that day, 52 nothing. Should be one of your greatest days of the year. And immediately after the game, you're just in this turmoil and inferno of the intersection of getting back to what we talked about, sports, fandom, yeah. but also your community. And were our players anti-police? Was our team anti-police? Who do you stand up for? How does it work? And one of the three hardest days of my life, sitting down with the police chief of St. Louis City, sitting down with the sheriff of St. Louis County and everybody asking, are you going to apologize for the actions of your players? And we were steadfast that we were not going to. That time it was really hard. The easy thing to do would have been to say, hey, we apologize. And That would probably placated sponsors and fans and certainly the police chiefs. But we supported our players, their right to express themselves. And we lost hundreds, if not thousands, of season ticket holders in those three days. A ton of negative press and feedback, but it was within our organization. If you asked all of our employees, all of our players, all of our leadership, it was steadfast in, this is the right path. We need to go support our players. We need to back the, you know, our viewpoint on the community, be able to have free speech and engage in these debates. And this was right after we had drafted an openly gay player, which also caused some consternation. And I think it was the time when it gets back to the earlier point of, do you choose internal leadership and what you believe for your organization or just where your fans want you to be? And are you just going to blow with the wind? I think as a leader, you earn your greatest credibility when you stand up for your people. Supporting your people and going through that to me, was the most important thing that they knew we would support them in good and bad. What did you learn from those three days?
1: Not the exact event, but what did you learn as a leader that you
2: would give advice to a leader in that position for the first time? Those three days, I'd be fascinated now because the world's so different with social media. And one of, I think, the hardest parts now from a leadership perspective when you run an organization is anytime there's a flashpoint in your community in the world how quickly you're expected to go make a statement. I think one of the best things you can do as a leader, sit down with your group, understand the viewpoints of your people, who's involved, who are your customers involved, your fans involved, and which of your employees really are passionate. Understand those viewpoints. Like ultimately, you don't have to weigh in on everything. And I think that's one of the hard parts now. And I think it's training your staff that we get involved in issues that matter to us, to our fans, to our people. But I also think one of the things is, it's okay to take a little bit of time and make sure what you say is what you mean. You don't have to be first, but you do have to be authentic. And and it does have to be poignant and meaningful. When you say something, you have to mean it. And it has to be, not everybody in your building is going to agree and not all of your customers are going to agree. You just have to be able to explain your why. You have to be able to explain if your staff is unhappy with a position you take, They have to understand and respect why you're taking it. They may not agree, but they have to understand why. Your customers may not agree. They have to understand why. But ultimately, I would say if you're doing things right every day, people should understand exactly where you're going to wind up on most issues. Mm. And I I think that, to me, is the consistency we go back to of how you run your building, how engaged you are in your community. And look, it's an imperfect science. It's not like we get it right. All the time with at the Rams. But what I loved about that situation from a leadership perspective and growth for me was our entire building was aligned. Mm-hmm. I always tell this to you know our staff. The most important fans we have are the people who work for us. The most important fans are our own employees. Because if they don't believe in what we're doing, certainly our fans won't. But one of the things in sports, we have such a young staff. I would say 50, 60% of our employees, this is their first job.
0: Oh, wow. You
2: wind up with a much different viewpoint and there is an age gap and a generational gap and you have to meet your employees where they are. But I think ultimately, is it authentic to what you believe every day? Is it an issue that you weigh in on all the time? And do people understand your viewpoint and why? That to me is when you know you have to speak up and be very crystal clear on an issue. So
1: four and 12... 12 months after the Lombardi trophy, which for for our European fans is the Super Bowl trophy. So that is the highest high for football. And then four and 12, we hope for your sake, will be the lowest low. So what'd you do the next day to grip yourself and say, okay, because you had to be doubting things.
2: We really looked internally, which was, were we doing the right things? Were we hiring the right people? Were we setting the right tone? And were we thinking long-term, were we doing what we thought we should do or what everybody else thought we should do? And I think it gets back to the question about your fans and trying to react and make decisions based on that versus really being internally focused, setting that vision, setting that drive and breaking through. And the first thing was, hey, when we made a decision to change coaches that we were going to go find the person who was best for what we thought, not who everybody else thought would be best for us, but who we actually thought would be the best head coach and who we could grow along with. And we didn't go into it expecting to hire a 30-year-old, but we did. And there were a lot of people who wanted to change our general manager out at the time, Les Need, who I wasn't really of that opinion, but I understood why people wanted that. We stuck by him. I, again, he's now one of the preeminent general managers in our game, one of the best leaders. We're so fortunate to have that pairing. But I think it comes back to you wake up and you say, I'm going to do this job free of failure. We've already hit rock bottom. There's nowhere worse to go. And to me, once you get rid of that fear of failure, now I think most good leaders are always driven by that insecurity that they're going to fail, that the world's going to change, they're paranoid about something. I think you have to be, to some degree, you have to blend that with optimism. You can't let your people see that what drives you is that fear. You have to lead knowing that when instilling a healthy amount of paranoia in all of your, your group, that you need to keep growing and getting better each day. But to me, it was, hey, there's nothing worse here happened, happen, but at least do it in a way that you believe will be successful so that it If you do get fired, you don't have any regrets about the way you handle the job, and you can't expect people who work underneath you to ever, you know, admit failure, you know, be vulnerable and admit defeat if you don't do so yourself. And I think that's true whether you run an organization, whether you run a country, whether you know, in anything you do, being vulnerable and open about mistakes and failure is going to be what propels you to your new heights. Because until you reach rock bottom, you're never really going to make the changes that you want and that you need to see in yourself. Like ultimately for all of us, admitting our shortcomings and not, you know, being embarrassed by them, but being open about them is fine. And, and the better we get about that as leaders, and I think that was the moment for me was standing up in front of our people and saying, I screw this up. I let this happen and I won't let you down the next time. That's impressive. Listen, we end every podcast with some rapid fire
1: questions. So we're going to just come at you and give us the instant reaction of what your answer is.
2: What's your favorite Super Bowl food? Good nachos are hard to beat <laughs> at any time in life.
0: If you could play any Olympic sport, what would it be?
2: Oh, uh, that's an easy one. I was a swimmer growing okay. up. Okay. I would love to be a, an Olympic butterflyer. Nice. Hard work. Who was your mentor that had the biggest impact on you? Uh, I've been so fortunate to have great mentors I, at each stop on uh, my job. First, I need to talk to about my father who worked in sports, who was revered around the NFL for his integrity, his wisdom, his fairness. I was then fortunate enough to go work, when you talked about the arena league, with Casey Wasserman, who now started Wasserman Media, who is running the Olympic effort in LA. And then fortunate enough to wind up working for Stan Kroenke, the and then the last one, I would say I'd be remiss, Bruce Allen, who was the first person who hired me into the NFL when I was in Tampa, taught me to have fun on the job.
0: What's your favorite way to decompress from a long day at
2: work? Favorite way to decompress from a long way at work is cooking.
0: Do you learn by reading, watching, or by doing?
2: I would say when you do and you actually screw it up, that's when you actually learn and grow.
1: Okay, last question. Here we go. If you get up dinner with any athlete,
2: living or dead, who would it be? dinner with any athlete living... Jeez, wild. I'm going to go uh, Michael Phelps. Oh, you go. swimming. Makes sense. Swimming. Like that. Is Michael Phelps a listener? Ma- sh- Michael Phelps, of course, to- is
0: a listener.
1: All the Olympic <laughs> okay. athletes are listeners.
2: Are you kidding me? Kevin,
1: thanks again for being here. So much to learn, whether it's passionate fans or technology or taking a stand, dealing with winning and losing. And so your discussion around passionate fans who really reflect not only a community they're in, you mentioned that uh, following a team is a great deal of someone's identity, about where they live and who they are and who they follow. And so your job, one of your jobs, is balancing and being responsive to outside-in advice. Lots of fans and players giving you advice, but being steadfast in listening to the outside-in view but making decisions for the longer term and balancing outside and inside to be who you want to be. And sports really matches that passion of the fans with the players. And so your discussion around passionate fans who really reflect not only a community they're in, you mentioned that following a team is a great deal of someone's identity, about where they live and who they are and who they follow. And so your job, one of your jobs, is, is balancing and being responsive Outside-in advice, lots of fans and and uh, players giving you advice, but being steadfast in under, listening to the outside-in view, but making decisions for the longer term and balancing outside and inside to be who you want to be. And sports really matches that passion of the fans with the players. You said that the most important redefining moment for you was giving your players the leeway. To do something and say something you may, not, may or may not have agreed with, and great leaders back their people, they don't second-guess them. And being consistent with who you are, understanding the stakeholders, take the time not to comment on everything, but reflect to be authentic when you do comment on something, and be consistent on how you comment there. As an organization with 91% millennials, go figure, and a 30-year-old millennial coach, you have broken new ground. And so this redefinition has also been about choosing players and coaches to challenge many of the historic norms, and you've done that very well. When you win and lose, they are cathartic moments. You have to get rid of the fear of failure and blend it with optimism to be better every day. And sometimes you have to make sure you're open about your mistakes, own your mistakes. Every leader must own their mistakes. And when you do, you can be propelled to new heights if you blend learning from mistakes with that sense of optimism. And finally, as with any leader, you want to have fun every day. Maybe it's easier or not in sports than it is in, in other settings, but being fun and having a sense of humor sets a tone for a human leader that people do want to follow. So thanks again. Fascinating discussion. Wish you all the best.
0: Thanks for joining us on this episode of Redefiner's. For more compelling insights from leaders across industries and around the world, Listen to Redefiners wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more
1: or to get in contact with us, visit our website at russellreynolds.com, find us on LinkedIn and follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at RRA on Leadership.